Welcome to the Old Time Radio Hour on Sid Valley Radio. This is Sid Valley Radio. This week on the Old Time Radio Hour, we'll be listening to a half-hour crime show, followed by 30 minutes of sci-fi. So, just sit back and relax. As we revisit the truly golden age of radio. Defense Attorney. Ladies and gentlemen, to depend upon your judgment and to fulfill my known obligation, I submit the facts, fully aware of my responsibility to my client and to you as defense attorney. And now we proudly present Miss Mercedes McCambridge as defense attorney. When Martha Ellis Bryant chose law as a career, she accepted the challenge of defending the defenseless. Joshua Masters was one of the defenseless. Suspected of murder, he couldn't defend himself. Your father told me his will left his estate to his three sons. But there won't be three sons to share it. That's all right. We can divide it between the two of us. I don't think so. Why? Because I talked to your father yesterday. He was afraid he'd be accused of killing David, and I told him if he was charged with murder, I would defend him. And I'm going to. Yes, Joshua Masters was one of the defenseless. And now the curtain rises on Act One of tonight's defense attorney story. Wealthy Joshua Masters is in the law office of Martha Ellis Bryant. Conducting an investigation is decidedly out of my line, Mr. Masters. I'm an attorney, not a private detective. I understand that, Miss Bryant, but this is something I believe you could handle better than a private detective. Well, I'm very flattered, but I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Your reputation for integrity is common knowledge, so I know I can trust you. You're always famous for proving people innocent. Now, uh, one of my three sons is trying to kill me. And you want me to find out which one is guilty? Well, in a manner of speaking, yes, but what's more important, I want to know which two are innocent. You see, there's a lot of money involved. Yes, well, how old are you, Mr. Masters? Sixty-eight. And your sons? The oldest, thirty-eight. Youngest, thirty-three. Are they married? No. All three like to consider themselves eligible bachelors. Yes, I believe I've read about them in the newspapers. I'm not proud of my sons, Miss Bryant. The parasites, waiting for my money, waiting for me to die. And one's trying to hurry it. And you are a widower, aren't you, Mr. Masters? Yes. My wife died in 1939. And will your sons inherit your money? As my will is now, the estate is to be divided equally among the three boys. Well, specifically, what is it that makes you think that one of the boys is trying to murder you? Well, I... I've got a weakness for speed. I like to go fast. In a car, boat, anything. I've got a foreign car. It's very fast. Are you uh, interested in foreign cars, Miss Bryant? Oh, well, not right now, Mr. Matthews. Yes, well, I-, I like to get out on the freeway and open my car up once in a while. I started out the other day and got a flat tire. I drove into a service station to get it fixed. One lug bolt was holding the wheel on. The other four had been unscrewed, holding by one thread. Well, of course, that is dangerous, but it could have been accidental. Maybe. But I've got a speedboat down at the bay. 
I started to take it out one day when I noticed that the bilge was full of gasoline and one spark plug wire was disconnected and hanging about a quarter of an inch above the bilge. Now, if I'd touched the starter, it would have all blown up over the harbor. Yes, of course it would. And uh, you believe that these potential accidents were planned? Yes, I do. There are other things, little things, but they all add up. When you know my sons. And you think that one of your sons is responsible for these occurrences? Yes, there isn't anyone else. No, that isn't what I mean. I mean, has it ever entered your mind that maybe more than one of your sons is involved? Oh, I see. Oh, no, I, I never thought of that. Well, I hope it isn't true. Oh, well, maybe it isn't true about any of them, Mr. Masters. It's true, Miss Bryant. David, Ralph, or Gordon, any one of them is capable of killing me for my money. Tell me, do you support them? Yes, but I don't give them as much money as they think I should. I believe that wealth carries a responsibility, Miss Bryant. A responsibility to use it wisely. They just want to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Masters, there may be cause for your suspicions, all right? But I'm not going to hazard an opinion, nor am I going to attempt an investigation. Oh, I see. However, there is a private detective I can heartily recommend to you. His name is Ted Ruby, and he's in the Hartley building. I've used him on several occasions myself, and I know that he's very reliable and that he's well qualified for this sort of thing. And I advise you to go to see him. You can tell him that Martha Ellis Bryant sent you. <laughs> did all this happen, Marty? Just yesterday, John. So I sent him to Ted Ruby. Well, Ruby will know how to handle him. At least he'll make some money on the deal. I'm glad you didn't take it. Well, it wasn't in my line, darling. But I was sorry I couldn't help him. He's, he's kind of sweet. Yeah, he's kind of a screwball. Why? Do you know him? No, no, but I know quite a bit about him and his family. The boys are always mixed up in some scandal, always expensive to get out of, and the old man pays the fare. Well, then the boys are worthless, huh? You bet they are. But the story got out about how every time one of the boys had been in trouble, someone had given an anonymous contribution to some charity, a big contribution. I chased down the story for the dispatch. It was old man Masters. Whatever the current scandal payoff cost, he'd give an equal amount to charity. Some screwy idea of, of dollar for dollar, good for evil. We could use more screwy ideas like that, Judd. Yeah. He gets tickets for speeding and goes through the same routine. He's just a screwball. Yeah, Marty. but you haven't talked to him. No. I have. I like him. I'm sorry I couldn't help you. Oh, excuse me. Sure. Martha Ellis Bryant's office. Oh, yes, he is. Just a minute, please. For you, Judge. Hmm? The dispatch. Oh, okay. Hello. Yeah, Steve. All right. Yeah, 1802 Sandalwood Drive. Yeah, I got it. Well, whose place is it? It is. Yeah, all right. I'll uh, I'll get right over there. Get right over there. There goes our luncheon date, I betcha. Yeah, Marty, there's been a killing at 1802 Sandalwood Drive. Got to get over there. You uh, want to go along? No, not particularly. Anyhow, I got a lot of work to do here. Well, maybe you ought to go, Counselor. Do you know who lives at 1802 Sandalwood Drive? No. Should I? Yeah, you should. That's the home of Joshua Masters. Mm -hmm. 
This is a real beautiful home, huh, Judd? Yeah, it is. I wonder if Josh Masters donated to charity an amount equal to the cost of maintaining this place. Why should he? Well, I just think it's a sin to live in a house this big. Oh, such a sickness. <laughs> it's all right, Sergeant Press. Okay. All right, get over there, those pictures. Yeah, right on. Right. All right. Yeah. Ah, hello, Judd. Hi. Uh, well, 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 Miss Bryant, this is a surprise. <laughs> was Masters a client of yours? Well, he was sort of a near client. What? No, I'm I'm just here with Judd, Lieutenant Leader. Oh, I see. What's the story, Ed? Ah, uh, one of those messy family affairs inside, Judd. You got any leads? Oh, you know, Judd, arrest within 24 hours. One of the boys, huh? Yeah. Which one? You know yet? <laughs> sure we know. It was David. Can I print that? Well, sure. Why not? Well, then you're going to arrest him right away. Arrest who? David. Arrest him? How can we arrest him? He's dead. Dead? I thought... Th Wait a minute, Ed. You mean that Josh Masters wasn't killed? The old man? Well, no, no. It's David. Then Josh Masters isn't dead? Well, no. Should he be? Well, of... Uh... According to percentage, yeah. What? Oh, nothing. You take it, Judd. It's your story. Well, what happened, Dad? Well, about all I'm sure of right now is that when Gordon Masters came into the library this morning, he found his brother David lying on the floor, dead. He'd been shot sometime last night with a forty-four caliber gun. You've uh, found the weapon? No, no. Medical examiner says it was a forty-four. And the old man's gun, a forty-four, is missing from the desk drawer. He says he can't account for it. What do you think about it, Ed? Well, like I said, we expect an arrest within 24 hours. Do you know who it'll be? Oh, come on. You know I can't answer that, Judd. All right. Unofficially, Ed, not for publication. Well, I think that Josh Masters knows where that gun is. Has he got a motive? Well, he had a quarrel with David Masters yesterday. That could be a motive. The only fly in that ointment is the fact that he was always quarreling with one or the other of the boys. Yeah, so I've heard. Where's Josh Masters now? He's in the library. At least he was just a minute or so before you come in. I wonder if he'd care to make a statement to the press. I don't know. You can ask him. He's a free citizen so far. Thanks, Ed. I think I will. Yeah. Look around if you want it, Judd. I got work to do. See you later. Bye, Martha. See you, Ed. Well, what do you think of this development, Marty? Darling... Joshua Masters isn't the kind of person who kills anybody. He's just Well, nice. Miss Bryant, I'm surprised to see you here. I was going to come down to your office. Good morning, Mr. Masters. I came with Mr. Barnes. He's a friend. Uh, Judd, this is Mr. Masters. Glad to know you, Mr. Masters. I'm so very sorry about your son, Mr. Masters. Well, thank you. I'm sorry I can't feel more grief than I do. My sons have been a great disappointment to me, Miss Bryant. Well, do you have any idea who, who may be responsible for this thing? No, I... I haven't. I... I wish I knew. That Detective Leaders, he suspects me. Did he say that to you? No, he didn't need to. I know. Miss Bryant, if he should charge me with... with this, I'd like to have you as my attorney. Oh, well, it's a little early, Mr. Masters. However, if you are charged with the murder, and if I believe that you're innocent, I'll defend you. Hello, 
Lieutenant Ledis's 24 hours are just about up. I wonder if he's made his arrest yet. If he has, Josh Masters is here in the jail, and you've got a client. Hello, Lieutenant. Well, good morning, Martha. Judd. Hello, Ed. Anything new in the Masters case? Yep. We found the gun. Hey, when? Oh, about ten minutes ago. Well, who had it? Josh Masters had it. Are you sure, Lieutenant? (laughs) Yeah. It was lying beside him. It was what? Yeah. Josh Masters committed suicide with it at 8 o'clock this morning. And now we continue with Act Two of tonight's defense attorney story. Masters didn't think they were accidents, Lieutenant. He was afraid one of the boys was trying to murder him. He wanted me to help him find out which one it was. Well, things sound more like accidents than plans as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, me too, Marty. Old people are always figuring that someone is trying to get him out of the way. Joshua Masters was not suffering from a persecution complex, if that's what you mean. That's what I mean. Not only that, I couldn't get one direct answer from him yesterday. You didn't catch him in a lie. No, no, but I didn't catch him in a truth either. Lieutenant, please remember he didn't know where his gun was. He might have thought one of the boys had it. Maybe he was unwilling to incriminate any of them. He said he didn't know where the gun was, Martha. Look, Martha, I like it this way. Joshua Masters thought one of his sons was trying to get him out of the way. For some reason, he figured it was David, and he jumps him about it. They argue, and Josh shoots him. Then, in remorse over having killed his son, he takes the gun and kills himself. Now, is that logic? Makes sense to me. If you didn't know Joshua Masters. Oh, come on. You didn't know him till two days ago. That's right. I talked to him for 15 minutes, and I got to know him real well, Lieutenant. Oh, Martha, how could you? All right. Will you grant that I am at least a fair judge of character? Well, he always have been, so far. Joshua Masters might have committed suicide, but he never would have committed murder. Oh, look, Martha, it was his gun. We couldn't find it yesterday. This morning, it's lying beside him. His fingerprints on the handle, the presence of powder burns on his head, and the angle of the bullet's path all point to his suicide. With the same gun to kill David. That's strong evidence, Martha. I know all that, darling, but it's too perfect. And now your story about those so-called attempts on his life gives a motive for murder and suicide by Joshua Masters. Wait a minute, Lieutenant. Have you found out anything about his will, about his insurance policies and things like that? What about who inherits the money? Well, no, no, not yet. But that's standard procedure, Martha. I'm going to question the two boys about it now. Ed, that isn't going to make any difference in the story, is it? I want to call the dispatch. I don't think we'll find out anything new. Chances are the boys will inherit everything. Well, they should. There isn't any doubt about what'll happen to the money now. Those two will know how to spend it. They always have. Are you going to question them, Ralph and Gordon, separately, Lieutenant? No, no. I'll call them in here together. You uh, want to hear? Yeah, I'd like to. May I? You sure. Ed, what about the noise of the gunshots? Didn't anybody hear it? No. Nope. Both shots were in the library, and Josh Masters had it soundproof. He liked music, and he liked it loud. Collected records, you know. Nobody else could stand it, so Josh had his library soundproof and played his records in there. That's the motive for killing him right there. Uh, not if the place was soundproof. Oh, uh, Sergeant, you send Gordon and Ralph Masters in here, please. Right. Believe me, Lieutenant, the last thing Joshua Masters had on his mind when he was in my office was committing suicide. You want me, Lieutenant? Yeah. Yeah, I got a few questions I want to ask as soon as your brother gets here. Uh, sit down. Look, let's get one thing straight. Just because my father killed David and then shot himself is no reason for you to start tossing orders around here. 
You're in my home, and when I'm ready, I'll ask you to sit down. Oh, a little touchy, huh? Why shouldn't I be? Just lost one brother and my father. Take it easy, Ralph. Sensitivity isn't a characteristic of the police department, you know. What do you want now, Lieutenant? This isn't a suicide until the coroner says so. And he won't say so until I finish my investigation. And I won't finish my investigation until you answer a few more questions. That's all we've done for the past few days. Ah, well, we can wind this up today. Right now, I want to know who stands to inherit the most from the estate. Why do you ask that? Because I want to know. Now, look, don't get out of line, Lieutenant. You I might... can answer that, Lieutenant. The money was to be divided equally among the family. The three of us. How do you know that? Dad told me a long time ago. The will hasn't been changed? Well, not that I know of. Did your father ever feel he was being picked on, abused? He certainly did. Hmm? When did you notice it? Every time we asked for a dime. That's right. He's pretty tight with his dough. From what I hear, you were pretty loose with it. What have you got to do with it? I'm Martha Ellis Bryant. I'm an attorney. Your father was a client of mine. Did you know that he had thought of changing his will? Any change he made wouldn't hold up after killing David and committing suicide. Losing his mind, not capable of handling his affairs. We can break any kind of a will now if we need to. Oh, come on, Judd. They'll be dividing his clothes next. Yeah, I could use some fresh air. See you later, Ed. Yeah, so long, Judd. Miss Bryant. Bye, Lieutenant. Any court will overrule a will made by a man that killed his son and committed suicide. Oh. Gordon Masters is really plugging that murder and suicide, isn't he? Yeah, but I think he's right, Marty. I don't know. He sounds to me like a man with something to sell. Or a man that's convinced of something. Yeah, well, maybe. Can you take me back to my office, sweetie? I wish to ponder. About this case? Yeah. Look, Marty, the police say it's suicide. Why don't you let it go at that? They've got powder burns, bullet angle. You just gave them a motive. Yeah. And you've got fingerprints on the gun to back up a suicide theory. Anyway, what are you doing in this case? You're a lawyer, not a detective. You're right, darling. I am a lawyer. And yesterday I told Joshua Masters that if he was charged with murder and if I thought he was innocent, I'd defend him. And that was a promise. Sure, but he's dead. Yeah, but he's still charged with murder, the murder of his son, and he can hardly defend himself. How far can you go with noblesse oblige? My darling Judson, there are people whose goodness is apparent even in a short conversation. And I think Joshua Masters was one of those people. And I don't think he killed his son. And I don't think he committed suicide. That's what I gathered. Anyway, the fact that he's dead doesn't cancel my promise to defend him. I just wish I knew how to begin. And neither one of those fine, upstanding boys was concerned beyond the question of who inherited the money. Their father lying in the next room dead. And they're planning on how to break his will. Yes, Marty, but that still doesn't make either one of them a murderer. Either one of them could have killed David to get a bigger share of the estate and then killed Joshua to get the money sooner. It's a good theory, Marty, but the police have a better one with evidence to back it up. Joshua Masters' fingerprints on the handle of that gun. Somebody could have put his hand around that gun after he was dead. All you've got to do is prove that, and the rest of your theory will hold up. Yeah, well, there must be some way to prove it. I never heard of a way, short of a confession. A little late for that. Marty, don't start wringing your hands over this case. It isn't that important. I'm not wringing my hands, darling. I'm just trying to think of a way to... Hey, Judd, there is a way. Hmm? Pull over to the curb. Marty, Marty, for Pete's sake, let go of the wheel. I'm sorry, darling, but listen. If I were going to put your fingerprints on this steering wheel... Now, give me your hand. Right. Here, okay. I'd put your fingers around the wheel and I'd press, huh? Like that. Yeah. All right, now see what happens. Look there. Hey, do you suppose it'd show? I don't know. But I'll never be able to sleep if we don't find out. 
Let's go back. Fast. Let's do. Burn them up barns, they call me. Well, this is sure going to start something new in the checking of suicides, Martha. I just wouldn't have thought of it, but there they are, and they match. Pretty obvious that Joshua Masters did not commit suicide, isn't it, Lieutenant? Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, we came pretty close to making a bad mistake. If you and Judd had been two minutes later getting here, it would have been too late. Why, was it that close? Well, the coroner and I were agreed on murder and suicide. We were ready to turn the body over to an undertaker. Mm. Well, I'll get the sergeant and bring Masters in here. Just a minute, Lieutenant. Suppose they were both in this thing together. Yeah, that's something to think about, Ed. It could be. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it could. Uh, you got any suggestions, Martha? Uh-huh. Why don't we get them both in? Then we can watch their reaction, maybe find out more than we know. That's the way to do it, Ed. And the star reporter of the dispatch will be in on the arrest. Yeah, I think you're right, Martha. Another sergeant, bring him in. Sergeant! Yes, sir. Have Gordon and Ralph Masters come in here, will you? Right. Look, Martha, you, uh, you want to handle this? It's your play, you know. I can be watching for trouble. There could be trouble, too. Sure. He's killed twice. All right, I'll talk to him. How much more of this pointless questioning do we have to put up with? Maybe they've decided it was suicide. Have you, Lieutenant? Not yet. Uh, Miss Bryant here has something to say. What's an attorney got to do with this? Is this something to do with the old man's will? Yes, in a way. That is, it will certainly affect the terms of the will. What do you mean? Well, your father's will left everything to his three sons, but there won't be three sons to share it. Well, that's all right. We can divide it between Ralph and me. No, I don't think so. What? I talked to your father two days ago, and he told me that he suspected one of his sons of trying to kill him. He did? Yes. Oh, that was probably why he killed David. He found out that he was the one. Is that what you think, Ralph? Well, what else is there to think? Well, there are other things. I talked to your father again yesterday. He was afraid he'd be accused of killing David, and I told him that if he was charged with the murder, I would defend him. What's this got to do with us? He has been charged with the murder. He has been charged with killing David and committing suicide, and I am defending him. Because he didn't kill David and he didn't commit suicide, your father was murdered. Who says he was murdered? I say he was murdered. You can't prove that he was. His fingerprints are on that gun hand. Yes, they are. And you, Ralph Masters, put them there. You can't prove that either. Oh, yes, I can. When you pressed your father's hand around that gun to leave his fingerprints on it, you left your own. My fingerprints aren't on that gun. That's right, Ralph. They're not on the gun, but they are on your father's hands. What? On his fingernails. You lie. No, no, Ralph. She isn't lying. We checked him. Is that true, Lieutenant? Yeah, real true. Ralph, you killed David and Dad. Yeah. Yeah, I killed him, and you would have, too, if you'd had enough nerve. Now, don't move anybody. Look out, Martha. He's got a gun. Right. I said, don't anybody move. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. I'll kill anybody that tries to stop me. I think I'll kill you anyway, Martha Bryant. If it hadn't been for you... What about the sergeant behind you, Masters? What? Oh, I got him. Jim. Good shooting, Ed. Oh, thanks for turning him, Judd. Lieutenant, is he... Is he dead? Yeah. Yeah, he's dead. First David and then Dad. Now Ralph. I... I'm the only one left. Oh, all alone in the world with a million dollars. All right, let's get him out of here. Have a couple of patrolmen come in here with him. What is it, sir? When Judd Barnes chose a lawyer as a girlfriend, he accepted the challenge of defending the defenseless girlfriend. Yeah, it looked kind of grim there for a minute. You probably saved my life, Judd. Thanks. Marty, you shouldn't put yourself in a position where you're exposed to danger like that, likely to get killed. Yes, Judd. Your business is defending, not apprehending. Yeah, I guess it isn't very nice to put your friends in a position where they have to rescue well, you all the time. Well, it isn't that. I... I was glad to do it, and I know Lita's was, too. No, I was kind of foolish. I shouldn't have done it. No, it wasn't foolish. Yes, it was. It was. 
I didn't owe Joshua Masters anything. Yes, you did. A promise made is, is a debt unpaid. I know, but after all, you I... You didn't do things like that. You wouldn't be my Marty. Now, which side are you on, darling? Uh, I've been trapped again, so help me. Judson, don't you know you can't win an argument with a woman? And when the woman is a defense attorney, hoo-ha! just heard Defense Attorney, starring Mercedes McCambridge, with Howard Culber as Judd. Tonight you heard Tony Barrett as Ed Letus, Dallas McKinnon as Josh and Gordon Masters, and Harry Bartell as Ralph Masters. Music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Defense Attorney was written by Jack Spears. The program is directed by Dwight Hauser. She's still a best horse in this track, Mr. Hillary. How long have you been handling her, Willie? Ever since you bought her, don't you remember? I'm paying you a great deal of money to train these horses of mine. When do they start paying off? Well, you can't expect a winner in every race, Mr. Hillary. I'm familiar with the law of averages. That's why I've asked my question. If you don't like the way I've been taking care of your stable, you can get yourself another trainer. Not so fast. We have a contract. You're a liar. Break it. No. You've been a trainer for 20 years. You've been with my stable for two. And in that period of time, you've made your worst record. What I'm trying to do is figure out why. Where's the answer? You don't buy your horses right. I got bad horses to work with. Dream girl's your best one. Ah, see? He agrees with me. Yeah, very touching. But since you can't accept a subtle hint, suppose I come to the heart of what I'm talking about. What do you mean? Simply, Willie, that you've been doctoring up my horses. I've got proof, and I'm going to see you put away for more years than you've been racing. Oh, no, you're not. Put down that shoe, you fool. Sure, I'll put it down. Oh. So long, Hillary. The race is over. When did you find the body here in the stable, Willie? Right before the first race. I was coming to look over Dream Girl before she was posted. Where was the body lying? There, by the door. There's a pile of straw almost covering it. Why do you suppose Dream Girl attacked Mr. Hillary? I don't know. I've always noticed she got sort of restless whenever he'd come in the stable. Uh, look at the marks on Hillary's skull, Willie. Notice the imprint of the heels on his chin and cheeks, and the mark at the top of the shoe on his forehead? Uh, she really must have stuck out of him. Where's the horse now? In the next stall. Uh, mind if I look at her? Ah, oh, go right ahead. She's in here. Uh, hello, girl. Hey. 
has blood all over her right hind hoof. Yeah, I've seen it there before, but I left it alone for you to look at. How long did you wait to call me after you discovered Hillary's body, Willie? Oh, I dashed to the nearest phone. I didn't waste a minute. Uh-huh. Where'd you find the horse? In the next stall with the body. And you have nothing else to tell me? Of course not. What else could that be? A confession, Willie, as to how you murdered Hillary. <laughs> How does the inspector know that Willie, Dream Girl's trainer, killed his employer? In just a moment, we'll know, but first... Crazy inspector, you can see for yourself the dream girl killed Hillary. Look at the imprint of the horseshoe on his head. I did look at the imprint, Willie. That's all I need to send you to the chair. As a man who spent his life around horses, Willie, you should have known better. A horse always kicks up with its hind hoof, Willie, not down. Therefore, if dream girl had attacked Hillary, the imprint of her heels would have been embedded in the forehead and not in his chin. Well, I'm sure like I mean... Uh... Yeah, it's all right, Willie. I know what you mean. You killed Hillary with one of dream girl's shoes. Perhaps this will teach you a lesson, Willie. Never try to pin a murder rap on a horse. This is the Old Time Radio Hour, on Sid Valley Radio. Welcome to the shadows. Old stories line the shelves of our dusty archives. Stories of dreams, mystery. We would like to bring one of our early radio tales back to life during this half hour. Hmm, let's see. Ah, here's a very darkened alcove marked Howard Phillips Lovecraft. It's seldom entered, judging from the dust and cobwebs. Inside, a strange green vaporous density appears to cling to the dread, almost unutterably repugnant decay of the walls. And dimly audible at times is the faintest echo of some lost, tormented soul, or possibly some ancient creature whispering out of the darkness, primordial and forbidden sounds. Not quite words, not quite utterances, 
ابن كورا اعتصاف يعني ليتر تب words not unfamiliar to those who have read the monstrous and abhorred necronomicon of the mad and crazed Arab Abdul Al-Hazret. Indeed, no series of horror tales would be complete without H.P. Lovecraft, for which we have reserved our final two programs. The one test, writes the author, of the really weird is simply this, whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, a subtle attitude of awed listening, as if for the beating of black wings or the scratching of outside shapes and entities on the known universe's utmost rim. Well, two and a half decades have passed since the story you are about to hear was first heard on the air. The tape itself is lined here and there with tiny pools of green sticky stuff. It's an early story by Lovecraft, but it gives some hint of what was later to emerge. It's called The Outsider. Unhappy is he, to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. I know not where I was born. I remember only this castle, infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and dismal high-ceilinged chambers. The stones in the crumbling corridor seemed always hideously damp, and the smell everywhere coming up out of the deeper passages from the remains there. The generations of bones that led endlessly down into the earth. The light was a dim and uniform gray, throwing no shadows. Outside in the forest, there was no sunlight able to come through the trees. The branches thickly interwove overhead, cutting out all sight of anything above. Except there was one black tower of the castle that reached beyond the trees. It rose up inside into a dark and inaccessible height. There was no stairway. It could not be ascended save by an impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived in this place all my childhood, but I cannot measure the time. Someone must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything else. Alive. I think that whoever nursed me must have been terribly aged. My first conception of a living person was of something distorted, shriveled, decaying. I remember there was such a corpse. 
I often went to it with a feeling of reverence and attachment. It was a woman, ancient, lying as she had died, partly eaten around the throat and chest. The terrible gesture of horror in her sprawled position and opened mouth. I would sometimes roam the passage where she lay. I seemed to be drawn there. I wanted to kneel before it, to lie my head against it. Once, once I recall, I, I reached, I reached out to touch her. And, and she seemed to draw away in horror as if some instinct of recoil had penetrated to the very bones of the hideous thing. It fell off the ledge, breaking apart on the stones below. I dared not touch her again. Otherwise, to me, there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that populated my world. They were to me more natural than the colored pictures of living people I found in many of the ancient books that lined shelves and piled corners. From such books, I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me. I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. Although I read of speech, I had never thought to try speaking aloud myself. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. I'd wander outside by the moat, filled with the thick and stagnant water. I imagined it to be the great seas I saw in the picture books. I even constructed a boat, a toy boat, with masts, and set it upon the water. But the slime held it. It couldn't sail. I watched it slip through the surface, sinking slowly, inch by inch down. Down till it disappeared. Across the moat, under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself there in the sunny world beyond the forest. The pictures would fade. They were not real. Oh, I wanted to make them real. I'd, I'd try to escape the forest. I'd, I'd run. I'd, I'd run, but the, the farther I ran from the castle, the more dense became the shade. The thickness filled me with a terrible fear until I forgot my search and, and turned back. Back. So, through endless twilights, I dreamed and waited. For what? Only skulls looked up at me, their gaping jaws, their silence. 
In my madness, I'd, I'd crush them. Who? Who put me here? Why? Why? My longing for light grew so frantic I could rest no more. Reached up into the dark, absorbed me. I stood beneath it and raised my hands into the abyss. Uh, there must be a way. There must be. I stood flat against the stones, grasping them. Strange, I could hold on to the stones more easily than I thought. I, 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 I pulled myself up, stone by, by stone, round the tower and up. And, and looked above. There was no end to the darkness. Below, the dim light seemed to be fading. But I had no fear. Oh, no fear. No fear. Only great anticipation. Why hadn't I tried before? There, there were ledges in the rock and, and places to hold. Places to hold. Hours later, I had reached the top. I clung to the stone. My head against a a roof, a stone panel that would lift. Oh, the climb had strengthened, not weakened me. Oh, it took a mere effort now to brace my shoulders against it and push up and out from the wall. Pure joy. It felt as if something else was working. Some other thing in me that drew me out. I was out. The stone had fallen shut. But... I had reached the outside. And overhead was the radiant full moon. I had never seen it before except in dreams and in vague visions. Memory. Ah, oh, sweet light. Fell upon on me like but where was I how high above the trees 
it seemed I was on a stone platform. But vast, vast, an observatory. But there were columns about, broken. And beyond the platform, other stones. Small ones with inscriptions and dates. And between the stones... Ah! Earth! Earth! There stretched around me nothing less than the solid earth! Housed with... Marble slabs and columns. And overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spires gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. The earth... <laughs> the earth... <laughs> Was this insanity? Or dreaming? Dreaming? There was a familiarity... Oh, but no, this was the world, and I would go forth to meet it. There were meadows with the smell of grass, and trees that did not cover the sky. Oh, and houses, houses. Some ancient ruins that my mind tried to reconstruct, but others, others with light. Ah, I could see figures inside. Lights. Oh, my mind played tricks. If I looked too long, the lights would fade. The figures melt away. The walls seem ancient, ruins. As if my own castle back there... No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I walked on. I, I almost knew the road. direction. Yes, inevitably in a direction. A large lit house, surrounded by a park with great windows, ablaze with light and sound. There was a courtyard. Oh. oh, this was the world. Oh, how brilliant it was. How merry. I had never heard human voices before. Yet it was familiar, familiar. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that, that brought up remote recollections. Oh, they, they smiled. They talked to each other. They laughed, laughed. Oh, world. The, the windows before me were, were two doors. I put my hands to each to enter and, and pushed open into the joyous room. And the people became silent. They all stared with a strange and, and familiar expression. I, I, I tried to speak to them. Uh, 
but it, it was hard to speak. Uh, no! I, I walked toward them, but they fled. Fled! Every face distorted. Screams, hands covering their eyes. Stumbling, stumbling away. Wait, wait, wait! Like, like mist, they faded before me. They seemed to melt into the walls, through doors, dragging each other. No, wait, wait, wait! They had all been gathered before a wall, which now stood there. With gilded designs bordering an archway, but the arch was black, reflecting the room. There was only one figure in it. Vague as I approached, then more and more clearly I could see it. It! Compound of all that is unclean, unwelcome, Abnormal and detestable. The ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and dissolution. Dripping, putrid eidolon of some unwholesome revelation. The awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. It was not. Or no longer of this world. Yet in its eaten away bony outlines I saw a leering abhorrent travesty on the human shape. Mine! No, no, no! The eyes as I approached held mine open. I couldn't turn away. But I would wipe out the sight. I'd reach out. Uh, I stretched out my fingers to the abomination to touch a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. But it would yield. It would yield. It would yield. Ah! At that last moment, I had recognized him. When I returned to the graveyard, the stone door was immovable. Now, now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind and play by day in the catacomb. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon. Yet in my new wildness and freedom, I welcome the bitterness of alienage. For I know always that I am an outsider. An outsider. Stranger in this century. 
for a time. A stranger among those who are still men. Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. Adapted and performed by Eric Bowersfeld, with technical production by John Whiting. Special technical production for this program was by Jim McKee. Two of Lovecraft's literary inspirations were Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Style and ideas from these two authors he freely drew upon and transformed. For instance, the idea for The Outsider apparently came from Hawthorne's Journal of a Solitary Man. Here is a brief passage. I dreamed one bright afternoon that I was walking through Broadway and seeking to cheer myself with warm and busy life of that far-famed promenade. I found myself in this animated place with a dim and misty idea that it was not my proper place or that I had ventured into the crowd with some singularity of dress or aspect which made me ridiculous. Every face grew pale, the laughter was hushed, and the passengers on all sides fled as from an embodied pestilence. I passed not one step farther but through my eyes on a looking-glass which stood deep within the nearest shop. At first glimpse of my own figure, I awoke with a horrible sensation of self-terror and self-loathing. I had been promenading Broadway in my shroud. There are numerous passages from Hawthorne and Lovecraft's commonplace book. We leave you with the following entry. A defunct nightmare, which had perished in the midst of its wickedness, and left its flabby corpse on the breast of the tormented one, to be gotten rid of, as it might. Well, that's all for now. Come and visit our archives again for another tale from the shadows. Real soon. A five-minute mystery entitled The Bray of a Mule. Somewhere on the great Arabian desert, the caravan of the noted Arab chieftain Rabin Saud has rested for the night. It is morning of the following day, and we find ourselves in the tent of the chieftain himself. It is Rabin Saud who speaks. See that the camels are watered, Sai, and as usual, see to it that Rasu is well cared for. Illustrious master, I would rather lose my eyes than neglect the sacred donkey of my chief. It is well. Go. Saud! Robin Saud! A morning greeting, Stark Effendi. I hope you have slept well. Robin Saud, I fear I slept too well. I've been robbed. Robbed? Bismillah, it cannot be. I didn't think it possible myself, and for that reason I left my money bags unguarded. For two weeks they've been safe. This morning they're gone. Dogs, swine... Was it a great deal of money, Effendi? A hundred pounds. My guest, I promise you before nightfall the thief will be known and your money returned. But how can you tell? How can anyone pick out the thief from over 150 men? There are ways, my friend. Go now and trust in me. <laughs>
my friend. You shall sit beside me here. I can't understand what you mean to do, Saud. I have called my men together. You will see now how an Arab meets out justice. My followers, a grave insult has been meant to offend a start. One of you has debased me so far as to steal from my guests the sum of 100 pounds. Sakut! The thief is amongst you. I shall seek him out and mark you, he cannot escape me. In my tent at this moment stands Rasu, the sacred donkey, a lineal descendant of the ass on which Allah rode into the holy city. Rasu shall tell me the guilty one. Sakut! Hear me. Each of you, one by one, will enter my tent and pull the tail of Rasu. If you are innocent, Rasu will remain silent. But when the false and guilty man pulls his tail, Rasu will bray loudly. And when he brays, it will mean death for someone. Go now. You, Sahi, first. Yes, Master. So I can't help saying that to me this is ridiculous. You will see. Saud, I told you this was ridiculous. Every man has gone into that tent and the donkey has given no sign. Precisely. No offender you shall see. Come. Where are you taking me? Come. Malu Sakut, you, put out your hands. Palm up. Now you, palm up. You, out with your hands. Palm up. Saud, this is even more ridiculous. Think you so, offender? Then let me tell you, this is your man. Oh, this man? Precisely. Dog, swine, yes, infidel. Mercy. Where is the money before I yes. slit your throat? Oh, behind the under-dead tree buried in the ground. Take it and be quick. Yes, oh yes, illustrious one. How you've got me stumped. How on earth did you know that man was the thief? Simplicity itself, if any. I merely coated the tail of Rasu, the sacred donkey, with palm oil. When I told my superstitious followers that Rasu would brave when the guilty one touched his tail, I knew the guilty one would not touch that tail. Behold, everyone has palm oil on his hands but the guilty one, who did not dare touch the tail of Rasu. Ah, it's, it's wonderful. It is understanding human nature. Here comes the wretch now, and he carries your money bags with him. The Old Time Radio Hour will be back next Sunday at 4 o'clock. We hope you can join us here on Sid Valley Radio.